Now please turn with me online or on paper to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Like I've been saying, today is the first Sunday in Advent. And so this is the beginning of the Christian New Year. So, Happy New Year. <laughs> the four Sundays of Advent each have a different theme. Hope, peace, joy, and love. And on the one hand, these are traditional. And you can get lost among the several variations of keeping Advent. And on the other hand, these themes are biblical. We're looking at passages in Scripture that look back toward Christ's first coming in order that we can be sustained in our own waiting for his second coming. So as I looked at our lectionary readings, I noticed that keeping Advent this year actually gives us four different views of Christmas. Uh, On the first week of hope, we're going to look at Paul's view in 1 Corinthians. And next week, in peace that reconciles, we're going to get the prophet's view of Christmas through John the Baptist. And then in the third week of Advent, the the week of joy that transforms, we'll get a kind of part two of John's view. And then in the fourth and final week before we celebrate Christmas, we'll see Mary's view and the love that fulfills. But again, today we're leading off with Paul's view that puts us back in touch with hope that sustains us as we begin the year waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus. So here now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, which is God's word, a light shining in a dark place. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Please pray with me. Now, O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law and grow us thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Amen. So, how do you picture hope? I mean, sometimes I think the picture of hope is a picture of something out in front of us, something like a a finish line. But sometimes we're just too tired to keep reaching out for it, and our hope fails us. I like to think of hope, I like to picture hope as a, well, this might sound weird, but I like to think of it as a fire in the basement. If you want to get someone out of a house, and they're having a hard time coming, just go down into the basement 
and set the basement on fire. And I guarantee they're going to get out because the smoke is going to come up the stairs, the heat is going to get to them, and pretty quickly they're going to come flying out the front door into the fresh air. So rather than thinking about reaching and striving and running out of fuel, hope needs to be more like a fire in the basement that fuels you from the inside. We run out of hope if we're always reaching for it in our own striving. Because let's be honest, sometimes we get tired. Sometimes there's not actually something that you want to get out of bed for. Every day does not present us with a picture of hope out in front of us that we want to reach out and grab. Some days actually present us with just another monotonous do-over. What do you reach for then? That's why we need a fire in the basement. If your basement is on fire, no matter how tired you are, you move. The heat and the smoke get you out into the fresh air, and no other extraneous thing matters. A fire in the basement gives you adrenaline, and it gives you focus. Hope burning inside is even better than hope out in front of you. You get tired of reaching, of striving, of doing it all in your own strength, and Paul knew that. He knew all about striving in his own strength, and he saw it in the Corinthian church. So he wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, to to help set a fire in the basement for them, to set the fire of hope in Jesus. Lasting hope is something on the inside moving us forward. It's a fire that's got a log on it big enough to sustain a hot burn through our cold night of waiting for Jesus' return. And we need to look at Paul's view of Christmas here because he gives us the log that will sustain the fire of hope burning on the inside and it'll move us just the same way it moved the Corinthians. And this Advent season, we must wait together because Jesus is the one who sustains us even as we wait for him. So, today, in Paul's view of Christmas, we'll see how Jesus sustains the fire of hope when he gives us grace, when he makes us rich, and when he confirms his testimony. So, he gives us grace, he makes us rich, and he confirms his testimony. Okay? So, first, Jesus gives us grace. Paul knows this, and that's why he's giving thanks for the Corinthians in verse 4. Now, I just want to warn you, I'm going to have to skip around a little bit to cover all nine verses in this today. So I'm starting in, uh, in verse 4 where Paul says, I give thanks concerning y'all because of the grace of God given to you in Christ. Paul knows that grace is not something you manufacture yourself and it's not something you can sustain in yourself. So when he recognizes it in the Corinthian church, His first response, actually, is to give thanks to God for it. Where do we see here that Paul knows grace is something you can't manufacture for yourself? Well, look in verse 1. How he speaks about himself and how he speaks about the church in Corinth. First, he speaks about himself there in verse 1. Paul, called an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, how is Paul called? Through his own intelligence and hard work. No, that's not what it says. It says that Paul was called through the will of God. 
Paul didn't manufacture his own calling. And Sosthenes is mentioned as a witness to that. In other words, Paul is not just some lone crazy person there. He has a fellow laborer who can vouch for his calling. And this is likely the same Sosthenes mentioned in Acts chapter 18 verse 17. Sosthenes who was beaten by the Jews at the founding of the Corinthian church. Do you see how their hope must be internal rather than external? If Sosthenes and Paul were reaching and striving out of their own power, that kind of hope doesn't last very long when you're beaten by your fellow countrymen and that beating is ignored by the ruling government. So Paul and Sosthenes are called by the will of God. They didn't manufacture it. They were given that calling. It was burning inside them. Now second, in verse 2, Paul goes on to say that the church in Corinth is called as well. He says that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus, the word more literally meaning set apart. They were set apart in Christ and they were called saints, just a title for people who are set apart. Just as Paul was not alone in his calling, so the church in that city was not alone in its calling. Paul says they are saints along with all those calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in all places. And in Greek, that's Pantitopo, Pantops. When you stand at the top of Pantops Mountain here in Charlottesville and look back west, you can see across the tops of all the mountains of the Blue Ridge, all those places, all the tops of the mountains. Paul is saying that the church in Corinth isn't the only mountain set apart calling on the name of Jesus. The church in Corinth is connected to all the places, pantops, where the saints are calling on the name of our Lord Jesus. Like all those mountains of the Blue Ridge, they're connected. The church in Corinth was called and connected with all the other churches set apart in Jesus' name. So I should point out that our church is also called and connected as well. Yes, Each of you individually are called, and you're called by the will of God, and you are set apart, and all of us together are called. A church, saints, set apart to call on the name of Jesus together. And we are not alone, but we're connected to all the churches that call on the name of Jesus in every place. Pantops. It was a good reminder as I was studying this passage to get lunch with a brother this week who serves the church in Malawi. And a lot of his work right now serving them is not done through traveling, but it's done through Zoom. And as he told me his story, I remembered that even we here are connected to the church in that country. And of course, in every country, every place where they call on Jesus' name. When you realize that you're called by God and also that God has connected you to others through Jesus, even in the midst of a global pandemic, even in the midst of a divisive election year, you have received grace. God moved first in your calling, and you are not striving alone in your strength. There's a fire inside that heats and moves you. So in verse 3, Paul talks about this when he gives his standard greeting, grace and peace. 
Now, in our house, I pray at dinner. Uh, I'm the one who, who and I, I pretty much pray the same prayer every night uh, at dinner time. Uh, the, the same words, I rarely change them, but each night when I pray, in those few seconds where I say those same words, the whole day flashes through my mind. And when it does, I see how my whole day connects to each of those words that I say. And so it is here. Paul is Paul's always saying grace and peace. He opens many of his letters with that greeting, grace and, and peace, but it is no mere formality. The whole letter is connected to these words, to this greeting. Both the problems and the hope of the Corinthian church is bound up in this greeting of grace and peace. He says grace in verse 3, and then he says it again immediately in verse 4. It's like he's saying, I pray grace upon you because I know grace has been given to you in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 7, he's going to say that they're not lacking even one gift, which is from the same root word as grace. You're not lacking any graces as you wait for Jesus. Peace, then, on the one hand, is the absence of conflict. Paul is writing this church because they had a lot of conflict going on, and so he blesses them in his greeting with peace. On the other hand, peace is an outworking of harmony. It's the exponential multiplication of all our gifts working together. So as Paul received grace and peace from Jesus, so he pronounces the grace and peace of Jesus on the Corinthians and on all the churches who eventually read this letter. So grace is something given to us by Jesus. It's a log on the fire inside rather than a finish line that we strive to reach outside. And once you recognize that, then you can see how Jesus makes us rich, as Paul says in verse 5. How does Jesus make you rich? Paul says here, in every way. So you are not lacking any gift. You are enriched in all speech and all knowledge. It's important for Paul to start here with the Corinthians. They were a church on the brink. They did not live as people who were enriched. They lived lived like people who never quite had enough. It was like they saw grace as a sheet that that covered some of the bed, but not all of the bed. Right? Uh, If it covered their shoulders, then their feet were exposed. If it covered their feet, then their shoulders were exposed. Uh, So if, if one part of the church understood Paul's preaching of the gospel, then they ended up putting themselves above Peter's preaching of the gospel. And if another part of that Corinthian church understood Apollos' preaching of the gospel, well, then they tended to put themselves above uh, both Paul and Peter's preaching of the gospel. They they lived like maybe some, some of them were better than others, and the sheet never quite covered the whole bed. They didn't realize it's not about who the preacher is. It's about what the gospel of Christ is. It's not about the particular preacher. It's about what you're doing with what you hear preached. We're not talking about separating true from false. We're talking about taking what you already know is true and applying it where you are today. Paul is saying that the Corinthians, 
As long as they have the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are rich in logos and gnosis, word and knowledge. Right? Paul knows every preacher who has preached in Corinth. He knows they aren't false, so he wonders why the Corinthians are dividing as if some of them are. Paul says they are rich in logos. On the one hand, that that is rich in speech. They have enough words to teach each other. On the other hand, I want to recognize a possible double meaning here. The logos. The logos was the animating principle of the world for Greeks. Uh, The logos was the force underneath all forces, animating the life of the universe. When Christ enriches us, He doesn't merely give us words. He gives us Himself. He is the Logos, according to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Paul agrees with this when he says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. By him all things were created, whether thrones or dominions or powers. Jesus is the animating principle of the universe. He gives us himself. This is what preachers of the gospel point to, Christ as the Logos. So why would you get lost in trading bubblegum cards about who is the preacher that you like to follow or that you like to listen to when all of them, any of them who are worth their salt, all they're trying to do is point you to the source of life, the Logos himself. When you're alone in this world, you're not alone if you're connected to Christ, the Logos. He gives you grace And he makes you rich in himself. On the other hand, Paul says they are rich in knowledge. And this is significant to Paul's audience because in that place and time, there were mystery religions that purported to give people secret knowledge. To give them the inside scoop on how the world really worked. And that divided some in the Corinthian church. Some of them said, oh, we have the inside scoop. We have the secret knowledge. Do you? There is no secret knowledge in Christ. That's what Paul says. Now, we have our own versions of this today. You can find it on the internet, whether it is political secret knowledge that says we really know what's going on in Washington, or financial secret knowledge that says we really know what you should be doing with your money, or group knowledge that says we really know who's in or who's out. And all of us have this thing inside us, especially me, uh, this little thing called FOMO, the fear of missing out. What, What if I miss? What if I miss the political knowledge that's secret? Or what if I miss the financial knowledge? Or what if I what if I miss the in-group knowledge? What will I miss? What maybe I'll be left behind, I'll be left out. What if there's a secret knowledge then, too, about Jesus that I don't know? Or, or worse, what if someone's keeping that secret knowledge about Jesus from me? That kind of talk and that growing little fear will keep you striving. It will keep you striving for things in your own power. And I promise, if you do that, you'll never have rest. You'll always be looking, looking for the right book, 
the right preacher, the right group of people, you're, you're, you're going to keep going and keep looking for that finish line stretched out in front of you. And when you do, you're going to wear yourself out trying to do it. Paul says, you're already rich in knowledge because the gospel is knowledge of Christ who he is as the Logos and what he has done as the Son of God and how you receive it by faith. And that's where Paul ends up in verse 9. God is faithful. He is the one who called you into the fellowship of his Son. And friends, fellowship is more than a cup of coffee. It is a full-orbed participation in the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and session of Jesus Christ. You don't have to fear missing out on it. Because when you recognize that God called you, then you can rest in the knowledge that he is faithful to move you. Like that fire in the basement moves you. So, Jesus gives us grace when he sets us apart in his church. Jesus makes us rich when he gives us himself as the animating principle of life. And as we participate in our calling, the testimony about him is confirmed among us. Now, twice in this passage, the same word is used for this uh, confirmation. Now, the ESV brings it across with two different words uh, to give us the nuance of, of how it's being used here. So, Paul's basic argument in the greeting of these nine verses is this. He is thankful for the Corinthian church because in Christ they are enriched so that they are not lacking anything as they wait for Jesus' return. Let me say that again. Paul's thankful for the Corinthian church because in Christ they are enriched so that they are not lacking anything as they wait for Jesus' return. Now that's what I'm calling Paul's view of Christmas. It's a recognizing that you are not lacking anything as you wait for Christ's return. Remember what I said Advent is. It's looking back at Christ's first coming in order to prepare for his second coming. Paul is looking back at at what is confirmed among the Corinthian church to remind them of what is sustaining them in the long wait before Jesus returns. And we need that as well. We need to see what is confirmed. First, the first thing that's confirmed is the testimony about Jesus that's confirmed among them. The story of Jesus coming, the Logos becoming flesh in order to dwell among us is the testimony confirmed. When the witnesses of Jesus come and speak to the Corinthians, they believe that. And that's what verse 6 means when it, uh, when it adds to verse 5. Enriched in speech about Christ and knowledge of Christ, the witnesses of Christ were believed by the Corinthians. The Christian faith is an historical faith. It is communicated through words about actions that took place in the world. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose, he ascended, he will come again. In that sense, it is not an inspiring myth. And that's what people attack most when they attack Christianity. They attack the historicity of the witness. From trying to prove that Jesus never existed, to trying to prove that Jesus never said or did the things that are written about him, the attack is on the lived body reality of the historical witness. 
And I will say that the weakest form of Christianity in the world today is the Christianity that takes the Bible and sees it as merely an inspiring myth. It makes Christianity like Star Wars. I mean, many people like Star Wars, and many people are inspired by the heroes of Star Wars, but no one takes it as true. No one stakes their life on it. Paul says to the Corinthians, I know that you guys know that it is more than that. I know that witnesses to Christ came and told you the historical events surrounding him, and those witnesses were confirmed and believed among you. And if you have the historicity of the witness confirmed among you, then you can also believe that you have every gift you need together to be sustained as you wait for the return of Christ. Because if you believe the witness of the visible things that Christ said and did, then you can trust Him for the invisible things that He said and did. If you believe the witness of Peter recorded through Mark who said that Jesus made the lame man walk, the man who was carried by four friends, then you can also believe that Jesus forgave that man of his sins, something that only God could do. And if you believe Paul when he tells his story of being blinded by the risen Lord on the road to Damascus and that scales fell from his eyes when Ananias laid hands on him, then you can believe that he is an authoritative witness to Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now the second thing that's confirmed are the Corinthians themselves in verse 8. If you can believe the witness of those who preach Jesus then you can believe the work of Jesus in you all the way to the end. The end of your life? Yes, but also to the end of time. That's what Paul means when he talks about the day of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 8. I mean, we've talked recently here about the day of the Lord. We've talked about the end of time when God will return and judge the world in justice and righteousness There are two ways to be judged on that day. You can be judged guilty, or you can be judged blameless, unable to be accused. Paul says to the Corinthians that that in Jesus Christ, they are confirmed to the end, so that they are guiltless, not able to be accused on the day of the Lord. You see, so much of our striving in life is rooted in a fear of not being enough or not doing enough. We want to reach the finish line, the finish line of our parenting or the finish line of our working or the finish line of our serving. Uh, But we so often get tired and run out of gas to sustain our efforts in all these things. And deep down, we're afraid that when it's all said and done, the people around us are going to judge us guilty. And if you believe in God... You believe it's God who will judge you guilty or innocent. And Paul says that the day of the Lord is the day of Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. And the historical testimony about Jesus is that he went to the cross on your behalf and he died the death you should have died so that you can have his life to sustain you. Jesus did the work on the cross to sustain you to the end, guiltless. Paul's view of Christmas is about a hope that sustains us from the inside so that we can quit striving in our own strength on the outside. 
God wants to give you the fire of a hope that burns on the inside so that you're warm on a cold night of waiting for Christ's return. God gives you that hope through his son, Jesus. You are sustained through his body broken for you and his blood poured out for you. His grace covers you and it propels you from the inside out. Jesus gives us grace. He's called you first to himself and then he has called you to be set apart among his people, the church. Jesus makes us rich. He is the Word made flesh who gives us all speech and all knowledge when He gives us Himself. And Jesus confirms His testimony. He has provided historical witness to His words and deeds. The final word is that in Him you are confirmed guiltless because of His work on the cross and in His resurrection from the dead. As we keep Advent this year, I want you to take Paul's view of Christmas. I want you to have a hope that sustains you from the inside out. If you want to straighten a bent rod of iron without breaking it, you have to heat that iron red hot. And then when that metal is red hot on the inside, it can be reshaped on the outside without snapping in two. When you know the hope of Christ who gives you grace, who makes you rich, whose testimony is confirmed in you, then your life will be reshaped as you wait for his return in glory. And your hope will be fueled from the inside out. Let's pray. Almighty God, you who are faithful to give us the hope of your Son, grant that we may wait together with thankful hearts for his return, that we may show forth our hope fueled by our sonship in Jesus, who is worshipped together with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.